Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. I'm your host, Charles Hecker, and this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world. Long COVID, US-China relations, a shift to greener energy policies, digital acceleration, and the risk of missing the post-COVID rebound. These are the top five risks for global business that Control Risks has identified this year. Think of them, if you will, as a set of lenses with which to view where we're headed. Today's episode is one of a five-part series in which we'll be exploring the regional impact of these global top five risks. And in this episode, we're turning our attention to Europe. As the pandemic enters its second year, as the post-Brexit trade deal period begins, and as Germany's Angela Merkel prepares to step down, a web of questions hangs over the continent. Who's gonna lead? How will the region position itself with respect to the US and China? And what will recovery look like as vaccines roll out? And more importantly, when will the recovery come? With me to discuss the impact and the nuance of Control Risk's top five risks for 2021 in Europe are two of my colleagues. Florian Otto is a director in our political risks practice based in Frankfurt. Florian, welcome. Hello. Thank you very much for having me, Chuck. It's a pleasure. Stina Connor is an analyst in our cyber threat intelligence business based in our Copenhagen office. Stina, hi. Hi, good to be here. So, Florian, this idea of long COVID is one that I think we have to explore with some urgency in Europe because the entire continent is about to lose its cool about the slow progress of vaccination. Is Europe's immunization strategy really at risk? How is the region going to deal with long COVID? And what's the breaking point here for, for tempers and patients on the rollout? The risk of missing the post-COVID-19 rebound at the moment hangs over Europe like a really dark cloud. And this is coupled with growing concerns about restriction fatigue, most visibly recently in the protests that have taken place in the Netherlands. Against this backdrop, recent announcements by you know the key vaccine manufacturers or two out of the three key vaccine manufacturers that they have to reduce deliveries in the next weeks and potentially during the first quarter has really rattled politicians at the European level, but also in member states. The bigger question is, does this actually delay the immunization? And you, you mentioned that a moment ago. And in the greater scheme of things, and to put things into perspective, at this point, the answer is probably no. When you take a step back and a deep breath, the EU and its member states are among the minority of countries that have actually secured access to, to vaccines for the whole population. Assuming that these shortages or delays will be temporary and also more vaccines will become available over the course of the next two or three months, we should still see a significant impact across Europe from vaccinations which will support a reopening during the second half of the year as long as the vaccines remain effective 
against the new strains of the virus, right? But why do we have CEOs of vaccine manufacturers and European officials and some member state ministers up in arms? It's the political pressure that is building everywhere because almost a year into lockdowns, the questions politicians get asked, not only by the opposition, but also you know, by, by their voters and people showing up in their surgeries, basically, is, you know, what's the deal here? Why is this taking so long? Why um, have you not sort of ordered more? And basically, at the moment, the whole focus is not on the big picture, but on why are we not making more progress more quickly? And I guess the reason why we're here today, right now, is that Pfizer, not too long ago, began to telegraph to the European Union that it was going to slow production just right now, at the end of January, the beginning of February, in an effort to retool and produce more vaccine later. And so, you know, that was something that all consumers of vaccines in this region could prepare for, but that doesn't necessarily make the news any more pleasant, particularly against, as you point out, an impatient populace. What happened next was AstraZeneca, who's manufacturing a vaccine in conjunction with Oxford University, announced in a slightly less planned fashion that they're having production problems, that their facilities in the Netherlands and in Belgium are just not producing the batches that they anticipated, and that that also will cut production. And, and so I guess what you have is this, this perfect confluence of antagonistic trends, we want the vaccine more than ever before. We need the vaccine more than ever before. We've been in lockdown longer than ever before. And then bang, you know, the companies say it may not be coming the way you want it to come. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there was a great deal of hope around the AstraZeneca vaccine because, first off, the number of doses that were supposed to become available would have actually made a massive difference in the greater scheme of things. And the announcement that they would reduce it, you know, by, by as much as 60% in the first quarter that basically hit a raw nerve, right? It would, at least in the short term, materially affect the progress of vaccination programs. And as you said, you know, Pfizer had telegraphed this quite early on, provided a really good explanation, and they had actually already flagged that last year that there might be the chance. So it didn't come unprepared. What doesn't help politicians trying to manage expectations of their populations is that basically on every news site you go, you see these nice comparisons between countries and their progress. And I guess what made the whole AstraZeneca thing particularly sensitive is that while the company announced they would reduce deliveries to the EU, they didn't say they would reduce deliveries to other countries, in particular the UK, which because it was quicker also to, you know, approve the vaccine has actually made significant progress on the vaccination program. And what you have now is that the UK is far ahead in terms of vaccinations per head, and the EU is trailing against the backdrop that there is still a fair bit of Euroscepticism around, even if we're not talking about this as much lately due to the pandemic. Those politicians who have invested a lot in saying we need a common European approach we don't want the larger and stronger member states basically get an advantage against the others, are now getting really, really difficult questions from the, their local media and from, from their citizens why they haven't been more proactive. And basically, that vaccine nationalism everyone's worried about, in a way, is a reflection of the pressure they get from the public. Let me move on to Stina for a second. And then you know we'll talk throughout the podcast about a number of issues coming up. But Stina, the longer long COVID lasts, 
the broader and wider and, and more expansive the cyber threat landscape becomes. So tell us a little bit about the European cyber threat landscape while everything else is going on on top of it. I mean, certainly when we when we look at this from a cybersecurity perspective, COVID has been dominating also what we've seen in the last year, both through the kind of threat angle of things, but also, and I think increasingly this year, through the kind of new challenges that are dealing with this new normal. We've seen from the start of the crisis that threat actors have really used the kind of fear and the disruption that COVID caused to shape their attacks, their targeting. And I think we continue to see this kind of adaption in what cyber criminals are doing in Europe and kind of following the way the pandemic evolves. So what we've seen towards the end of 2020 was a kind of a move to target vaccine supply chains, both on the criminal side for ransomware, but also on, on kind of the espionage side and really kind of seeing what is actually happening in terms of, of European vaccination. Where is this going? So attack at the end of 2020 at the European Medicines Agency, where we've also since then seen a leak of tampered vaccine data, potentially pointing to, to a disinformation campaign here as well. So linking back to kind of the trust, I guess, as well, the trust issues that are associated with the vaccine campaign. One of the things that are going to be added to this in 2021, and in particular in Europe, but, but globally, is this kind of increased connectivity, increased attack surface that we're currently having because of how business practices have changed. Everyone's working remotely, everyone's working from home. The kind of perimeter in terms of cyber is massively expanded. And that, of course, brings additional vulnerabilities in that respect. Stina, can I ask you a question that's sort of been lingering on my mind as I follow your material and, and the cyber threat during the pandemic? You know, we hear about attacks on regulatory agencies. We hear about attacks on pharmaceutical companies, you know, whether it's ransomware or, you know, data leaks. We hear about misinformation campaigns. You know, this is a global public health crisis where hundreds of thousands, more than a million people have died. What kind of ruthless cyber threat actor is exploiting a global pandemic for profit? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the answer to that is quite a few of them. <laughs> During last year, we did have some of the, the main ransomware groups and, and, and organized cybercriminal groups come out and say, we won't attack hospitals, we won't attack those kind of facilities during the pandemic. But what we've seen in terms of, of the threat landscape, certainly that's not been upheld. If we look at the criminal threat, the key driver and the way these people make their money is by causing disruption and making it impossible to, to operate, which forces you, if you do not have backups or you do not have the ability to put that up and running again, it forces you to pay, right? These, these people want to make money. That is what we've been seeing and what we expect to see continue. Naive no more. The scales are falling off my eyes as we talk about this. Let's move on because having... Two European experts on the podcast is, is a great opportunity to get to one of the more interesting aspects of the tension between the United States and China, and that is what everyone else does. Where does Europe go between these two antagonistic superpowers? I think this independent path is something that Europe at least very much would like to find, because in a way they have to. Basically, Europe faces the challenge that they need 
strong ties, both with the US and with China, and particularly against the backdrop of the pandemic and the economic harm it has brought, is bringing and still will bring. They are dependent on expanding trade once that's possible again, but also, you know, fostering that type of global environment that will provide a basis for strong growth for for many years to come. Because the conviction overall is you grow out of a crisis like this, right? Nobody wants to go back to long-term austerity measures or, or hiking taxes. People are tired, particularly for democratic countries where you actually sort of need to convince your voters on a regular basis that they should trust you to let you continue do things. You need an environment that is conducive for that. Now, Europe understands that the relationship between the US and China is unlikely to improve in any meaningful way. But as it's dependent on both or depends on good relationship with both, it has to chart that middle path. The challenge is that basically in in terms of its values, it is much closer to the US, even though there is concern about you know how, how lasting that change with the Biden administration, how lasting that will be. And in a way, they, they also don't want to end up in a situation where over the next four years, they basically put their money on the US just for a different administration to come in and then to find themselves exposed and out in the cold with China. And, you know, the economic importance of China can't be overstated. So this is this is where Europe finds itself. So, Florian, for companies, you know, a company has to sort of make America happy. It has to make China happy. And now it's also got to make Europe happy or at least make sure that it's tracking and monitoring and staying sort of within boundaries now on all three continents. Absolutely. And I think, you know, probably one objective that Europe has is that that we're not ending up in different blocks. And in a way, you know, companies probably have an, an advocate for this, you know, still globalized economy on their side with Europe, because what Europe doesn't want is that the US decouples from China and that we end up in a world where we have two or three different sort of major regulatory spheres. We may still end up there. But for, for Europe, that is the worst case outcome because it will it will slow growth. And this is why, you know, you, you've also had, for example, Angela Merkel say at Davos that, you know, everyone needs to come together to restore multilateralism, to solve problems together in a way, you know, pleading not necessarily for a return to the good old days, but at least, you know, pleading with, with everyone to put the shared interest front and center instead of heading further on that path towards fragmentation. Justina, it was precisely that fragmentation that we saw coming in data, in cyber, in equipment, in hardware, in software. And we have clients turning to us saying, now, you know, where am I going to put my data? Where am I going to buy equipment? You know, how big does my legal department have to be? One of the interesting dynamics or, or outcomes of this US-China backdrop in Europe is around kind of what's happening in technology, what's happening you know, with the approach to, to the kind of digital sphere. And I think a lot of that focus is on, and has been on China. We were looking at kind of the Chinese technology and so forth and globally as well. But looking at what's happening in Europe, this is also recognition that we're overly reliant on US technology infrastructure. And that's something that's been brought very much to the fore during COVID that you know, we now have this push in Europe to to build a European cloud solution, right? The infrastructure in Europe. So clearly there is that component of, of kind of digital nationalism that has been 
kind of very much brought in by what's happening with US and China. But as a reaction to that, Europe is, yes, looking for kind of multilateralism, also when it comes to, to some of the key themes when it comes to data governance, internet governance, standards, so forth, really looking to find interoperability, make sure that the internet stays united as opposed to, to disparate. But when it comes to some of these other things, the, the data, the critical infrastructure, there is also that movement in Europe, I think, for just understanding how dependent we are on, on the foreign providers. It's an excellent point because Europe has become complicated in, in that sense. There is still this conviction that problems are better solved together. But in a way, there's also a greater deal of realism in the thinking of decision makers that, you know, you, you can't just always request a certain course of action. But if the world is moving into another direction, you also have to adapt. And suddenly Europe starts looking very differently, right? We, we sort of see the first signs of, of, of Europe developing something. And when I say Europe, I mean the EU, something like teeth, right? We were used to this in the trade arena, but at least you can see that there is now a more concerted effort to actually get up to speed on the geopolitical environment that impacts you. And I think part of the challenge for companies is that it's not clear cut what you get out of it. And I think Stina made some really excellent points that despite calling for multilateralism, Europe is taking steps to continue to set its own standards in the technology and data domain. We know that they have been pushing very, very strongly for you know their high standards on data protection to, to become an international norm. And of course, there are ideas around positioning Europe as this more sustainable in many ways, and that includes data, greener economy of the future that will actually be able to you know attract talent from other parts of the world and in a way help them to make up that gap in innovation that everybody is bemoaning at the moment. Florian, thank you for that very nice setup by using the color green in one of your remarks, because that brings us very nicely to our third risk. And, and if the story of cyber sounds a lot like seeking equilibrium among a multitude of competing priorities and competing trends, is it your sense that Europe and the rest of the world maybe is actually achieving some sort of consensus around the green recovery, building back green, investment in green technologies? And where does Europe sit in the extremes between, you know, we, we talk about convergence of, of, of unusual parties in the green space. You have Extinction Rebellion basically working to the same agenda as the private equity sector. Both want to jump into, into green investments with both feet. Where does Europe sit on that? Europe has very much sort of claimed the role as as the leader in the global green transition. It's driven also by this idea that the bloc has to transform its economy in any case to maintain competitiveness and to restore some of its competitiveness internationally. In this sense, the COVID-19 pandemic and the disruption it has brought is an actual opportunity because it is a rupture and it allows to think differently about how you build back and building back better in Europe means building back greener. To come back to the previous topic, I mean, there, there is great hope that at least around fighting climate change and decarbonizing the global economy, that common ground can be found between the US, China and, and Europe as the main emitters out there. So that is good news. But there's also the other dimension that, you know, Europe wants to really 
change its economy. It wants to become the first carbon neutral continent by 2050. And they mean it, right? It's, it's not just some slogan. We will see a lot of regulation coming through at the European level this year to also ensure that that green recovery will actually take off. Europe is putting a lot of money into it. It's COVID recovery fund is sort of heavily geared towards green investment. We can discuss at a later point how effective this is going to be, because, you know, it's one thing to have the money available to spend it properly is a different matter. But there is the political will. There are the means. And what it means for companies is, on the one hand, that there will be a lot of opportunity around green investments from renewables, infrastructure upgrades, helping companies to adjust because they will have to adjust. The flip side of that push towards a green economy will be tighter regulations around you know, everything that deals with carbon emissions and more broadly, the, the environmental footprint of companies. And when this then properly kicks off and when emission targets are tightened further, companies will have to adjust and it will, it will cost money to actually do that not only in terms of the investments they have to make, but also in terms of updating processes and also understanding the new regulatory requirements that are coming their way. Stina, let's move on to, to risk number four, which is very, very squarely in your field of expertise. And, and I think one of the things that we're saying about cyber risk specifically in 2021 is that in 2020, companies took their five-year strategic tech plan and they basically executed it in five weeks. And this creates a series of vulnerabilities. What are European companies, or is there anything specifically European about this incredible acceleration? Because no one's going to go back to making five-year tech plans anymore, are they? Everything is going to have to be faster and faster and faster. It really is, to, to some extent, about dealing with what happened last year, right? Because it really was, as you say, this kind of rapid digital transformation process and, and kind of technology adoption just to keep the doors open. It was in many cases, and this is certainly the case in, in, in Europe, but also elsewhere, this was done with business operations in mind rather than particularly security, right? So we have this expanded connectivity, expanded attack surface of companies, and it is about securing that new perimeter, those new solutions, and, and, and kind of making sure there aren't vulnerabilities in that. And of course, that's very much the case for European companies, as it is for others that have done this jump. But I think for the outlook as well, we're kind of seeing, I guess, this trend also interlinked to a few other trends that are particularly relevant in Europe as well. So one of those we've already touched on, which is this kind of growing push towards digital nationalism or establishing Europe in that sphere. And I think from a tech or digital risk and cyber risk perspective, this also has very concrete implications in terms of regulation. So it's kind of a move from last year. There was a lot of ambition coming out of the EU around these issues. We're now seeing a move to action. So we've seen, you know, a publication of new NIST2 directive, for example, which really looks to kind of secure critical infrastructure but also, as I mentioned, like the kind of working towards establishing European infrastructure. So it is this kind of growing complexity in this field with data protection regulation, but also following up with other areas that will affect both the kind of the technology side of things, but also kind of on the cybersecurity side. 
just as a final dimension of our forecast for the year is really around the cyber threat landscape and the fact that we continue to see this expansion of complexity and of, of types of attacks and in particular more disruptive and more harmful attacks. And Europe and in particular Western Europe continues to be among the most highly targeted for cyber threat actors. They will follow the money, they will follow the interest. This is where they will focus. So the trends that we see globally are going to be very, very significant in Europe. And I think just to draw two of the key trends we're seeing there is really around the kind of extortive cyber criminal threats, the ransomware threat, but also the combination of ransomware and data theft, where this leak of corporate data, of sensitive data, of government data is becoming kind of common practice among cyber criminals. And on the other side, you know, cyber threats are always closely entwined with what we're seeing in the geopolitical space. Florian and Stina, let's see if we can't end a little bit where we began. And that is to, you know, there is a clear linkage between the rate of vaccination and the rate of recovery. But, you know, both Control Risks and our partner company, Oxford Economics, are forecasting a robust return to economic activity in the second half of the year. Yes, it's predicated on a successful vaccine rollout. And yes, that seems fragile at the moment. But sooner or later, there will be a return to economic activity, particularly in Europe. What are you seeing in companies? Are they ready for this? Because our fifth risk is that the rebound comes, but companies are still stuck in crisis management mode. Is the body politic ready for recovery? And, and is the corporate body ready for recovery? There is growing recognition that this is also an opportunity to do things differently and to bring in structural reforms at much greater scale and at greater pace. Basically, what, what Stina has outlined around this crash digitalization, right? It's probably one of the main benefits, if you want to say benefits in relation to a pandemic, but, but it really is, it has allowed Europe to catch up. And there is the sense that you shouldn't squander an opportunity like this to build back better in light of all the pain this pandemic has brought to countless people. But the devil will be in the detail in the sense of, you know, will, will governments who probably all agree on the broad outline of, of the plan, will they manage to, to implement this in practice? And we can come back to that in a second. Are companies ready? Well, it depends. One thing that we've observed in our consulting work with companies, in my case, predominantly in the German-speaking countries, is that those who have been best in class have become even better. They were the first to question their approaches. They were the first to also ask for, for example, external advice to red team their assumptions and you know, to really scrutinize how they we're not only responding to the pandemic, how well the crisis management teams are working, but also think about, you know, what will the world after the pandemic look like? What, what does it mean for our business model, for our processes, for our people? And this is heartening. But at the same time, you know, we also know that a lot of companies aren't asking these questions and are very much stuck in responding to, you could say, the closest crocodile to the canoe and are sort of stuck in the present, whereas now would be the time to think about where does this leave me in two, three, five years time? And what do I need to do now? And what are the assumptions I rely on? And are they still up to date and accurate? Stina, when we get past what we hope is just a blip in vaccine supply, you know, I, I have this picture in my mind of European digital infrastructure sort of creaking and groaning and sweating. And then all of a sudden, there's going to be this massive 
economic upturn. Can the machine hold? Is the infrastructure there to support this economic revival? We don't see that there is a reversal to this, right? So what we've seen in technology adoption is essentially a change in how we operate. Yes, we will go back to some extent to to offices and so forth, but the requirements and the demands on the infrastructure will be continuously going upwards. And that is also, to some extent, the long-term issue. It needs to be incorporated and, and, and thought about. And I think in particular, from a kind of business perspective, it's also about understanding this new reliance on that technology infrastructure, right? To to understand where the pitfalls are, where the potential vulnerabilities are, not just in your own kind of networking system, but also we're now so reliant on, on technology that essentially running a business will not be possible if we don't have certain preconditions there, you know? So it will be to kind of assess that bigger picture that we're now in Start by looking at your own systems, start by securing your own solutions, but then take a more strategic view, potential shortfalls, potential vulnerabilities in this kind of new reality. I want to say thank you to Florian Otto and Justina Connor for joining me today. Florian, I hope you'll come back and we'll update the scorecard. Thank you very much for having me, Chuck. And Stina, it's always a pleasure. We've been doing a bit of a global tour together, haven't we, on RiskMap? It's nice to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was good fun. That's all for this special edition of The Global Insight. Check out the other four episodes in this series by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also visit controlrisks.com for our full Risk Map 2021 forecast, which includes our top five risks, key topics picked by our analysts, a calendar of geopolitical events throughout the year, and the actual map of political and security risks for 2021, which is where the name Risk Map comes from to begin with. Thank you, and bye for now.